Grab a block of cheese, some Jack Links, and crank this broadcast up. I say that all the time. The Foul Life's Midwest series with Wisconsin's chosen one, Joel Clayfish, is laying the groundwork for legislators to see the light and to open a Wisconsin sandhill crane hunting season. And those whooping cranes fly out with the sandhill. You just hit on what I think is the biggest false argument against a sandhill crane hunting season. We don't want you mistaking them for whooping cranes. Joining Joel on his epic sandhill crane lobbying pursuit is Bruce Ross, executive director of the Wisconsin Waterfowl Association. George Ermert, board member of the WWA. Mark Kakich, former state champion duck caller. And the guest of honor today, Taylor Finger, who is the game bird biologist for the state of Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources. The Foul Life's Midwest series with Joel Clayfish is brought to you in part by Benelli, Jargon Game Calls, The Provider, and Travel Wisconsin. The Foul Life's Midwest series begins now. What is up, everybody? You're listening to the Foul Life Podcast Midwest Series. I'm your host, Joel Clayfish, coming to you from the great state of Wisconsin in the heart of the Midwest, in the middle of the waterfowl hunting season, which has been absolutely fantastic so far, as far as Canada geese are concerned. You know, we're coming here today on the heels of a huge meeting we had at the Capitol in Wisconsin, something we've been trying as waterfowlers for literally more than a decade. It was about 15 years ago that I was in the Wisconsin House of Representatives and authored legislation to allow a sandhill crane hunt. And at the time, I was all but crucified for it. So let me set up for you the way Wisconsin works. We have the International Crane Foundation here based in Baraboo, Wisconsin. So there are social mores about the state of Wisconsin and Sandhill crane hunting. There are political issues with it. There are a desire to have a crane hunt by the vast majority of those who utilize the outdoors of the state of Wisconsin. And, you know, Bruce, I have to give you credit because in the state, what have we been facing and why on earth is not a state like Wisconsin that is such a waterfowl state not have a sandhill crane hunt? Well, I think you hit on the topics, Joel. Uh, the International Crane Foundation is here. There's a deep emotional connection to these birds that they help create appropriately. And because of that, we are facing opposition in what would otherwise be a no-brainer with regard to the uh, health of the population and the numbers that we have in the state. So what we face is not a scientific or regulatory issue. It's more an emotional issue that is uh, creating the objections to the Sandhill Crane Hunt. I think you're right about it. I think really it has a lot more to do with people's feelings than it does have to do with the science. You know, those who are anti-hunter are often trying to say, look at the science, science this, science that. But if you look at the science of this, Sandhill Cranes in the state of Wisconsin is a burgeoning population. And that is why Taylor Finger, who's the game bird biologist for the Department of Natural Resources, and I really appreciate you getting the approval to come on and talk about this. What are we looking at as far as the state of Wisconsin goes, as far as a population, growing population almost to the point, I mean, you tell me, are we to the point of a potentially harmful population boom here? What are you seeing the numbers doing in Wisconsin? So, yeah, I mean, from a flyway perspective, because these birds do migrate 
migrate all the way down, you know, throughout the Mississippi Flyway, we look at a population at that level, and then we can break it down here in Wisconsin. So per the Mississippi Flyway Management Plan for the eastern population of Sandhill Cranes, it calls for a population goal between 30 and 60,000 Sandhill Cranes. In the, the state? No, for in the entire population, 30 okay. to 60,000 for the entire population. And right now, our last fall count in 2022 was well over 100,000 birds. So we're well above what that range is that's been identified within the flyway plan. And specifically here in Wisconsin, when we do our fall migratory counts, so we do that usually the last week of no, or last week about November, middle of November, we count anywhere between 40 to 50,000 Santo cranes on an annual basis. So we have at least half of the entire population that moves through Wisconsin each fall. That's insane. So just to add, some of your listeners out in the western part of the country may be saying, well, wait a second, we're we're hunting sandhill cranes out here. Uh, and I thought there was something close to 1.4 million sandhill cranes in the country. And that's correct. What we're talking about is that population. It's called the eastern population that migrates through uh, Wisconsin uh, winters down in the southern parts of the states and, and uh, is well above the population targets, as Taylor pointed out. And Taylor, so tell me, though, from a perspective of a wildlife biologist, you have a higher degree in wildlife biology what are some of the potential dangers when populations of any wild species get too big so as this happens with every successful reintroduced species you know we get to a point where all of a sudden there are too many for some folks within society. And we're seeing that now, whether it's related to crop depredation issues, we get phone calls each year of Santo cranes attacking people's windows, attacking people's vehicles. And again, those, those are the types of situations that we don't, we're not at the point where we have to worry about like disease or things like that because these birds Is are that very, coming? Uh, they're pretty territorial. So they tend to make sure that if they're in an area, they're going to keep those out. They don't concentrate like you would see with, you know, specific I mean, in the fall migration, we'll see it, but we had a really good scenario with even influenza over the last couple of years. We didn't get any reports of sandhill cranes getting that and then when they do concentrate for their migration. So, again, we don't see any of that. It is more or less how they're impacting people and potentially the resources, whether we're talking crops or agriculture around them when that population does get to be where it's at. Well, I know that uh, the farmers call them sewing machines because they will literally go after a planter, follow a planter and pick the seed out and eat it. Now, all animals, I always tell everybody, farmers hate all animals except the ones they own. Because all the animals, the wild animals out there, what are they doing? They're eating crops. They're out there eating farm crops. And a turkey, a goose, a duck, a deer are eating farm crops. True. But the sandhill crane is the only one of those species that picks the seed and the crop never blooms. So they're not picking kernels off of a corn cob that exists. They're in essence able to eat the seed. Is that not true? Yeah. That, I mean, again, that's where most of the crop depredation occurs is in the springtime right after they planted. And as soon as we start getting some of the green shoot on that seed itself, that's where all the energy is. That's where the cranes will then go down and then pick those uh, un- if they're not treated untreated seeds. And yeah, they definitely can have negative impacts for farmers. Have you seen in your time studying wildlife biology, have you seen the population just 
exploding every year. What are you seeing from that perspective in the 10 or so years you've been watching it? Yeah. So, I mean, if you can look at the, the Fish and Wildlife Service does put out a population report and all the way up until probably the late 90s, it was kind of slightly gradually growing. And then in the late 90s till now, it's just been an almost an exponential increase in what we've seen for Canada geese to the point where over the last 25, 30 years, they're growing at over 10%. Canada geese or, or I mean, mean cranes? Yeah. Sorry, Sandal Crane's growing at over 10% annually. So again, this is one of those Holy things cow. that they're, you know, give it another 20 years and we could have almost twice as many birds as we have now. And Kekich, uh, you've been hunting. One of the great stories of the state of Wisconsin is our reintroductions of species here that have done so well. The wild turkey, we've seen just absolutely a booming burgeoning population. Now it has slowed down. The turkey population has slowed down and backed away a little bit and we have to watch those and obviously our harvest numbers are important to that. But Kakich, one of the other great success stories of the state of Wisconsin and frankly the entire Midwest here nestled between the fly way of the Mississippi, the Great Lakes, and all the inland lakes and streams is the development of the Horicon Marsh. You have been involved in the Horicon Marsh development for decades. What have you seen? And it's funny to talk. I mean, it is a little bit tangential to talk about sandhill cranes when you're talking about waterfowl because they're not technically a waterfowl, but they exist in, on, and around waterfowl situations and in marshes. I was at the, the, the Horicon Marsh just not too long ago. Ton of sandhill cranes there. You worked on the redevelopment and reemergence of that fantastic watershed there. What have you seen in your time with sandhill cranes? and frankly, the rest of the waterfowl population? Well, I think it starts with good management. I think good habitat work brings a resource back to numbers where they're at. Uh, the latest numbers I think we've heard on the Sand Hill is they're north of 110,000. So we've greatly surpassed that 30 to 60,000 goal. And when you look at Horicon Marsh, you know, everybody thinks of the Canada goose. You can go to Horicon Marsh right now for a weekend and see very few if any sometimes Canada geese flying around I guarantee you that you can drive anywhere within three to five minutes around the you know the close area around the marsh and you will see flocks of sandhill cranes and fields I think they just completed their survey there and, and it was just shy of 10,000 birds uh, that they surveyed within the Horicon with used to be the Horicon Intensive Zone. So that in itself, you're seeing sandhills in places where you used to never see a sandhill. Or yeah. if you did, it was, you know, very few. But that also goes to the success of the Horicon Marsh as an epicenter of waterfowl in the entire Midwest. <clears throat> we have taken it. We've seen such progress that we used to have a Horicon zone for Canada goose. And now that's gone because it was such a flourishing area. And we have them so uh, evenly distributed throughout the state. And as they migrate through here, that there is no Horicon zone anymore. And that's great for waterfowl hunting. Well, and not only that, like in Horicon right now, the feds, uh, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, they do weekly surveys and roughly there's estimated at 170,000 mallards are within the federal refuge right now. But I think something to take into consideration is you have this significant population of sandhill cranes that are using that federal refuge, tens if not tens of thousands of cranes at times 
But also in that same area, you have a spattering of the whooping crane, and those whooping cranes fly out with the sandhill, right? You just hit on what I think is the biggest false argument against a sandhill crane hunting season, and that is that the other side will say... We don't want you mistaking them for whooping cranes. But if you've ever seen a whooping crane or a sandhill crane, I mean, we are identifying ducks five minutes after daylight in the morning. And that's a responsibility that's on a hunter that we take very seriously. So, I mean, this argument to me, I think it doesn't hold water. Bruce, it drives me nuts. Yeah. If the ICF, the International Crane Foundation was here, they would say that the more times you put uh, guns in close proximity to the uh, the experimental whooping crane population, the, there's a risk of doing some damage to it. However, uh, their own studies point out that no sandhill crane hunter has ever accidentally shot a whooping crane. That said, uh, and this is embarrassing for those of us who carry a gun afield. Uh, there have been shootings of whooping cranes, uh, but usually they're miscreants or poachers and they sh- deserve the full uh, effect and force of the uh, of the law when that happens. Speaking of miscreants. Easy, package. easy, big fella. Come on now. <laughs> so going back to the whooping crane where I wanted to go was that. That concern of being an accident is always going to be there. However, uh, one of the most sensitive areas of the state is around Nacida and Horicon, where they not only have annual visits of the whooping crane on the migration route, but also they reintroduce young that are raised at these locations. Those fields that those sandhills visit are the same fields that the whoopers visit as well. And those same fields are... Is that what we're calling them now, the whoopers? Right. Today, that's what we're calling them, right? But where I'm going is that those same fields are also filled with duck and goose hunters hunting those same fields. That's right. So the hunter is going to be the last person that wants to have that accident. Um, I think four out of five times... I mean, you see sandhills in the way distance and you go, birds, guys, birds, get in the blinds. And then about five seconds later, you see that break in their wing beat. And I would say four to five times in a goose field, you could shoot a sandhill crane because they come right into the decoys. And we're not seeing people shooting sandhill cranes. Yep. And I want to bring George into this conversation. One of the reasons that he's here and that I think he plays kind of an important role on some of the nuances of this issue is because George is dun, 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 a lobbyist, just like me. Uh, well, actually, probably more successful than me, but he's a lobbyist in Madison. But not as good looking. The, oh, I'll take that. I'll take it all day long. God help us. <laughs> George is, is a lobbyist who's kind of, and you're on the WWA board. And I'll be fair, you're newer to waterfowl hunting. And I am. I am. And you've really dove in, you know, with both feet and you are now kind of part of the waterfowl culture and you've, you really love it. We've had some really successful hunts together, some great times. What is it about this issue that even has conservative lawmakers afraid to address it? I brought this issue to the forefront and I was crucified. I never even got a hearing on it 15 years ago. I hope 
we're past that point. But what is it about lawmakers who are elected by folks who are constituents who strongly support hunting that we're not even seeing lawmakers taking a stand on the fact that we have a burgeoning population that is going to be out of control at some point if we don't start having conservation regulation equaling a hunt? I mean, one of the big reasons is education. Lawmakers, by and large, they're regular people just like us. They have other jobs and they don't hear about this issue. So they don't know what they don't know. And they don't understand how this bird is truly managed and what it means to have a hunt. What they hear about is, oh, you want to kill this pretty bird that I feed at my bird feeder in my backyard. No, I don't want that. They are gorgeous creatures. I don't want you to shoot them. But they don't understand that this is a federally protected bird that's managed at the federal level that goes through a lot of hoops before even a hunt can happen. There are a lot of steps. And I know that Taylor can probably describe what you know some of those management steps are at the federal level, but I think that's the first part. They don't understand all the things that go into it. And two, and this I think is on some of the conservation you know, for the groups, we've done a bad job of educating as well. Mm-hmm. We're not out there talking to the lawmakers like we should be. Uh, and that's on all of us. And that's on all the listeners out there, too. We're not out there doing our part to do the education. So that's something that blows my mind. Uh, you know, I represent Safari Club International. Um, you guys represent WWA, the, the Federation. And we had a conglomerate of our groups. And I want to be honest, Kakich, I like you, brother. But the Federation and the Waterfowl Groups and SCI, they don't always agree on everything. I mean, they we're don't not always supposed agree. To. We're not supposed to always agree. I think that's what makes us a very strong group of people by when you don't agree, you have a tendency then to discuss the topic at greater, you know, in depth. I I do agree with that, but I think hunters in general end up hurting themselves when they cannot get consensus. Well, and that's, I think that's the biggest thing is when it comes to the conservation community, and I'm going to just kind of speak globally about conservation now, everybody has their own lane. Right. Whether it's we're waterfowl, right? We're going to focus on wolf issues. We're going to focus on deer management. Everybody stays in their whole, their own lane and nobody thinks about the greater good about conservation as a whole and what we have to do as hunters to get beyond that. I can count on one hand right now the amount of lawmakers that probably hunt regularly in the state of Wisconsin. Yeah. There are, there are 132 elected lawmakers in our state legislature and I can count on one hand the amount of that, that regularly hunt. That's today. Yeah. It was much different 10, 20 years ago, but that's today. They don't understand the hunting culture. And that's why it's so important for the conservation community. We have to think about the greater good and work together more. It can't just be siloed issues. And I have to work. I couldn't more agree broadly. with you more. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that goes right to what I always talk about when somebody has somebody is against hunting, but they're going to go to the grocery store and buy a package of meat and cellophane. You know, what is actually a more responsible way to get it to have the responsibility and the burden of the kill and the cleaning of that meat in preparation to bring it to the table or someone who goes and buys it where someone else does the dirty work, right? And it's in a cellophane wrapper. I think you hit on one of the keys, and that is the fact that lawmakers, as they are, are 
probably not as educated as they could be about the taking of wild game for the purposes of feeding your family, uh, which is the base for all of us here. I just loaded up a cooler uh, with some meat for Kakich. We had goose pot pie for dinner before the podcast. You know, your Go wife ahead. did a fantastic job. Thank as, you. Yeah, yes. just wanted well, to point I've that taught out. her well. I've I taught know. her how to yep. make that pot pie. Now she makes it better than I do. But I'm very used to my wife going into whatever I do, doing it better than me and getting paid more for it. So it's fine. Bruce, I can see you're. Yeah, I think this is an important point that, you know, Aldo Leopold said uh, there are dangers in not owning a farm. There are spiritual dangers in not owning a farm. And one of them is the belief that your breakfast comes from a grocery store. It doesn't, right? And so the further you are away from that harvest, the more you like to think that there's this antiseptic uh, process to get you uh, your protein. And that's part of what we're up against here. Yeah, I think you're exactly right about that. So what is the next move? I have to tell you, all of our groups got together. This blew my mind. This blew my mind. We set up with the U.S. Uh, Fish and Wildlife, we set up an informational hearing at the Capitol just to try to get some information out there. We had darn near 50 people and 15 actual lawmakers and the rest of the folks were their staff. They showed up to this meeting. That blew my mind. It was standing room only of people who actually cared to learn about the Sand Hill Crane, which... Kudos to George and Bruce and Mark. Kudos to, to you guys for setting that up and going through the work to do that. Did it surprise you? Yeah, no question. We were shocked. We had RSVPs for about the 12 to 15. And, and when there was standing room only, we ran out of brochures. It certainly reflects there's a lot of interest in the topic. It doesn't necessarily reflect that there's a lot of support for a sandhill crane hunting season. So the education needs to consider. But some of those issues that they're interested in learning about are what Taylor talked about earlier. The uh, depredation issues, the uh, the corn that's under uh, risk as a result of a growing and unchecked population. And it's really important to us that we try not to overstate facts. When George talks about education, it's really important for us to have our facts straight, to not overstate them, uh, because on the other side of the issue, there's a lot of emotion and facts get stretched in trying to support their position. I think our credibility as a hunting conservationist organization or organizations really needs to reflect what the reality is on the ground, what the science supports, and what are the things that hunters bring to the table, not just in harvesting a critter, but in helping support the through it their donations and their volunteer time and other means uh, support the habitat that's important that's really the issue that's associated with uh, wildlife restoration i say that all the time the bicyclists on the trails the atv users the kayakers the mountain climbers none of their trails none of their stuff would be halfway as fantastic in wisconsin as it is if it weren't for the hunters i mean the pittman robertson funds the aldo leopold funds that's all conservation dollars that comes to them from the purchases of ammunition and firearms from the purchases of hunting and fishing licenses the duck stamp you know george what's the next step then i guess to start to win over lawmakers that they will say okay look Yes, it's a beautiful bird. And we hear all the time, I mean, look at, look at a wood duck. That's a beautiful bird. Look at a golden eye. They are beautiful birds. Look at the, the North American Eastern wild turkey. That's a beautiful bird. 
it's not a matter of it being a beautiful bird. And we had the same fight over morning doves. And now two years after morning doves became legal, nobody had a problem with it. And the population is in check and it's doing great. So George, how do we turn that corner and get lawmakers to understand where we're coming from and that we're not just out there to kill. We care about the conservation. We do want to put it on the dinner table. It's one of the best wild fairies you'll ever eat in your life is Sandhill Crane. I got highly criticized for calling it the ribeye of the sky. It's more like a tenderloin of the sky, but what's our next step? I think it's important for all the listeners, especially those in Wisconsin, to just truly remember or truly understand what it takes to pass a bill. And everything that goes into that. So, you know, in order to pass a new law in the state of Wisconsin, you have to convince a majority of lawmakers in both the state Senate and state assembly this is the right thing. So there's 33 in the state Senate, 99 in the state assembly. So we have to convince a majority of people in each of those houses that this is a good thing to do. And it has to go through the legislative process in both of those houses. That includes a public hearing. Yeah, it's like, you know, a vote, uh, then an executive vote, and then it has to get to the floor. Right. And you got to convince people all along the way. All along the way. And let's not forget the governor has to sign it, right? And right right now in Wisconsin, there's a uh, divided... uh, government. The, uh, the governor is a Democrat. Uh, the legislature is controlled by Republicans. Uh, they're not exactly seeing eye to eye on many issues right now. So trying to weave that, uh, walk that path that tries to get both sides of the aisle supportive of such a thing is the challenge that we have in front of us. And that's the other, you know, the key thing is even if we get it through the legislature, we still have to get something signed by the governor. Right. So that's another key person. So there's all these things going on behind the scenes. So it's not as easy as people think out there that, hey, you have a bill introduced. Why can't you get it passed? Well, that is why there's people like me who have a profession, lobbyists exist, because it's really hard and it takes a lot of time. Yeah, and we take a lot of criticism, but I say to people, you know what? Everybody loves to poke at lobbyists. Oh, the special interest, this, that, and the other. Everybody has special interests. If you like boating, you, boating is your special interest. If you like, you know... There is a boating manufacturing association. Of course there is. There, everything that you like to do in the state of Wisconsin is your special interest. And very often, you know, yes, are there a few crooked lobbyists? No doubt about it. And they make a bad name for the rest of us. But the reality of it is our job in this realm as lobbyists is what we're doing. And that's education. Very often, these lawmakers have got 1800 things flying at them from every direction. And they simply don't have time to sit and con concentrate on the nuances or details of every bill. That's our job. You guys came up with the idea for a ledge council study committee to talk about, you know, depredation issues, to talk about population issues, health issues of the population we're talking about. I mean, we're careful to monitor the birds that are killed. Hip surveys are on every uh, license purchase. We monitor turkey numbers. I think that having a Ledge Council study committee will at very least say we're serious about this. And those are fact-finding missions that really can't be that criticized. And I think that's the goal, Joel. I mean, what you know, I think as for all the groups that are here represented, what we want to see is this issue move forward, but in a way that provides additional education in a very nonpartisan, factual way for every elected official in the state of Wisconsin. That's the way we want to move this forward right now, yeah. is creating just a very, you know, 
nonpartisan or bipartisan fashion that people can just see the facts and the science behind this. Conservation and food sustainability are the driving forces of the hunting culture. Lawmakers, as they are, are probably not as educated as they could be about the taking of wild game for the purposes of feeding your family, which is the base for all of us here. The Fowl Life's Midwest series is made possible by Avery Outdoors, Secure It, and American Almond Beef. Joel Clayfish and the boys will return after the break. Don't go anywhere. It's called Benelli's the Fowl Life for a reason. We love Benelli. They are the top shelf of waterfowl shotguns, all shotguns for that matter, in my opinion. But when you start talking about duck blinds, goose blinds, lay down blinds, panel blinds, pit blinds, the debris, the wear and tear, everything that we put our guns through throughout a duck season, whether it's a 60 day duck season in the south or you start up north and north of the border in Canada, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and follow the migration south. Some of us, myself included, hunt over 120 days a year. And every single time I squeeze that Benelli trigger, it goes bam. I'm so proud and honored to be part of the Benelli family. And when it comes to the Super Black Eagle 3, the 12 gauge, the 20 gauge, the 28 gauge, I absolutely love this line of shotguns, the inertia, every single thing from the rib down to the sight, to the choke tube, to the constrictions, the performance is what it's all about with Benelli. The Super Black Eagle series in 12 gauge, 20 gauge, and 28 gauge, whether you get Rob Roberts to build the performance shop or you keep them straight out of the box factory, they perform their simply perfect. It's Benelli. It's the confidence of shouldering that shotgun and the responsibility of pointing it at a live animal and squeezing that trigger. The dispatch, humane, ethics, everything that goes into it. Benelli believes in the culture of the duck hunter, the goose hunter, the turkey hunter, the upland hunter. So whether you're doing sporting clays, whether you're chasing waterfowl, chasing upland, chasing turkeys, Benelli builds a shotgun for you. Benelli's the foul life. They're 13 seasons as our title sponsor. Can you imagine this relationship. Thank you, Benelli. Thank you all for supporting Benelli. And I know it's all of our goal to walk into that sporting good, that Benelli dealer, that store and say, let me shoulder that super black Eagle. And now you can do it in so many gauges, the sub gauges included. We're fired up. Good luck this season. Stay safe out there and shoot straight. Shoot Benelli. When it comes to setting up the perfect spread, there's one crucial element, motion. Ducks have sharp eyes, and static decoys won't fool them for long. That's where motion decoys step in, bringing your spread to life and creating an irresistible scene. So why are motion decoys so important? Ducks are social creatures, and they seek cues that signal safety for landing. By adding motion to your spread, you're telling passing flocks that it's all clear and inviting them to join the party. Mojo's spinning wing decoys emulate the flash of duck wings from afar to draw them in and finish them like magic. Mojo's decoys are specifically designed to catch ducks' attention, and Mojo's motion decoys shine on those calmer low wind days when natural water movement is lacking. So if you're serious about bringing ducks to your blind, embrace the power of motion decoys with Mojo and head for MojoOutdoors.com today. The Answer 12. It's our new Foul Life Edition safe gun storage system from our friends at Secure It. Brand new design, so much room, so much organization, so much potential, so many options. You can see videos on our YouTube, on episodes of Benelli's The Foul Life airing exclusively on the Outdoor Channel. We do everything with our Secure It Answer 12 Foul Life Edition safe. Check them out at secureit.com right now and design your own. Get the cubbies, get the shelves, get the bungees, get the magnetic hanging hooks. You got plenty of room for 12 long guns in there and the organization that you can do with everything from knives to binos to dog training equipment to sporting 
Ryan Clay equipment to eyewear, ear protection, all of your chokes, all of your sights, everything that you want. You can organize it for different times of the year. It might be dog training season. It might be sporting clay season. It might be duck season. It might be turkey season. Organize it. It is a safe built for the shotgunner. My friends, Tom, Chris, everybody in New York at Secure It helped me design this safe. Our crew went to work on it and we have come up with a configuration that will allow you to make it your own. Comes with the magnet set with the foul life with labs and ducks and flocks, working geese, working ducks. The foul life edition Secure It Answer 12 Safe is available right now at secureit.com. Check us out this coming February at the National Wild Turkey Federation Convention in Nashville, Tennessee. We will have more of them on site, on display like we did last year in our booth. It's going to be magnificent. I hope you get a chance to get your hands on your own, organize it the way that you see fit. And when you open those doors and see what you've created, it's going to give you even more energy, even more aura, even more enthusiasm for this unbelievable lifestyle that we get to live as an American shotgunner, American duck hunter, turkey hunter, upland hunter, dog trainer. Let's do it. Get the Answer 12 Foul Life Edition right now at secureit.com. You can't go wrong with it. Thank you so much, Secure It. And thank you all so much for supporting the brands that support us here at the Foul Life Podcast and the Foul Life TV. You have to fight for your right to Sandhill Crane Hunt. Hunters don't vote, and that drives me absolutely mad. The Foul Life's Midwest Series crew is marching to Wisconsin's capital, and they're guided by scientific facts and reasoning. What we face is not a scientific or regulatory issue. It's more an emotional issue. Really, it has a lot more to do with people's feelings than it does have to do with the science. You know, Sandhill Cranes in the state of Wisconsin is a burgeoning population. This portion of the Foul Life's Midwest series with host Joel Clayfish is proudly brought to you by Safari Club International, Vortex Optics, and Realtree. Let's get back to the boys. I want to pivot right now because I've we've got Kakich. Kakich, you're kind of the liberal of the group. I mean, you're kind of you know you're the yes. like the. <laughs> I bring balance to the force. You bring you bring you bring balance to it from yeah. the other side. Right. But, but you're also a reasonable dude. I mean, yeah, you know, we've so, had many discussions. You're a good friend of mine, and one of the things that drives me batty is that. Hunters as a whole, you know, we're going to have to coalesce on this. We're going to have to give up some of our hardcore, oh, I want it just this way to come together because without all of us together, this is not going to happen. And one of the biggest complaints I have, and I'm talking to you out there who gets in the blind and say you don't matter, hunters don't vote. And that drives me absolutely mad. And Kakich, whether it's your philosophical side or mine or in the middle where we meet most of the time, we have to get people engaged. So as George said earlier, the stakeholder groups, you know, on this topic will definitely need to be able to work together and reach out and tackle the difficult issues, right? So work with the ICF and work with other stakeholder groups to ensure that we have a consistent message because as Taylor has yet to talk about, you know, if this goes, I and mean, we didn't talk about that every year, a thousand plus Sandhill cranes get killed and left in the field oh through depredation. This drives me absolutely mad. It's crazy, right? But the point Explain is... Explain it, because the listeners probably don't even know this, well, and they're not going to be able to fathom In this. a second, we'll let Taylor explain it. But the point is, is the thought of leaving a thousand plus Sandhill Cranes 
to rot in the field and not use them turns every hunter in a wrong direction. So no doubt that is a key where hunters have a significant feeling. This is happening and the population is still growing at exponential rates and for a sandhill crane season to happen, you know, maybe Taylor can address also what Wisconsin would have to well, do. Yeah, let's not get too far past that because I guarantee you the listeners are sitting out there going, what the ever-loving hell are you talking about? That's why I'm letting Taylor shot. talk about it, right. And not being utilized. Taylor, why on earth are they getting shot and not being utilized? So, again, currently sandhill cranes are protected by the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. And so these birds have those protections. However, we do have crop depredation issues. And so we get to a point there. Our farmers will go through two or three hoops to jump through, whether it's trying to use abatement, trying to use these other things to make sure that the cranes don't continue to damage their crops. But it gets to a point where they do. They can get permits to remove those cranes, federal permits from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and USDA Wildlife Services folks. And they'll get those permits and then harvest those birds, remove those birds. So when you say remove, you mean kill. Yep. Right now in the state of Wisconsin, a thousand cranes a year are being shot or killed. By far more, more than that. More yeah. than that. Yeah. Yeah. Anywhere we're over the last five years, we're averaging between a thousand and thirteen hundred cranes. It's and again, it's not, it's not just unique to Wisconsin. Over a thousand cranes are being shot in Michigan. Um, we're seeing this several hundred cranes being shot in Ontario. And our three, you know, Wisconsin, Michigan and Ontario are the primary breeding range of the eastern population of sandhill cranes. So, again, we are seeing significant take of these birds and why on earth are they being left to rot because again they're protected by the migratory bird treaty act the the federal government doesn't want this to be a special spring sandhill crane season that you can oh well look i'm going to claim damage on my crops well i'll get 10 sandhill crane permits and come on out to my farm and shoot them and then go ahead and put them in the freezer they don't want it to become a special spring season as an extra opportunity for property owners do you guys realize for one minute how that goes absolutely abhorrently against everything we stand for they're getting killed and left in a field nobody can bruce nobody can want that no absolutely not and i think one of the things that we have to think about is the environment into which this discussion is being populated in wisconsin we're embroiled for all the listeners who may not be in wisconsin we're embroiled in a very antagonistic wolf hunt debate and people who are on the other side of the issue will hold that up or be informed by that and think that somehow uh, sandhill cranes is not being managed by the federal government. They are. And in fact, any hunt here in Wisconsin is going to fall under the same regulations, the same sort of annual reviews that the flyway takes a look at populations annually and manages uh, the harvest that the hunting states along that flyway can take. So it's very closely monitored. And that same flyaway system has resulted in the growth of waterfowl over the last 50 years by 56%, as opposed to the other birds that we feed in our backyards are down 3 billion uh, birds collectively. I mean, it's it's shocking the difference between those species, game species, that are supported and loved by hunters and the, the money that you talked about earlier, Joel, and the, the conservation efforts that we bring to the table versus those that don't see that sort of 
uh, I'll call it love. Yeah, just I cannot get past the birds being shot and left in the field to rot. Most people I can't, can't get past that. And I think, and when people say to me, "What's it going to take to bring the sides together?" I think that's that's what it's going to take. Yeah, and we just Joel, just to jump in on that, we had the U.S. Fish and Wildlife uh, Flyway representative here on that legislative briefing to provide the facts from the Fish and Wildlife's perspective on how they've managed this population to success, even though they've also encouraged or at least authorized hunting opportunities, he said maybe 750 birds might be harvested in Wisconsin uh, on an annual basis given today's numbers. Yeah, so we just talked about about half of the birds that are killed and left in the field to rot. Yeah, isn't that crazy? That's crazy. So, you know, when we look at the Sandhill crane season potentials, the good thing is, is we're not trying to create something that, is brand new. The Mississippi Flyway has a Sandhill Crane management plan to use as a guide. But maybe Taylor, you know, if if Wisconsin was to have a Sandhill season, wouldn't Wisconsin have to come up with their own management plan? I, I mean, as we have with just about every other game species that we harvest in the state of Wisconsin, I would envision we would have to because sure, we would course. do monitoring that efforts. Would be in the legislation. We would do research. We make sure that we emphasize that, hey, if this were to occur, hunters, non-hunters, everyone alike doesn't want to see a negative impact on a population. So why we draft and develop management plans is to specifically provide as much opportunity as possible for people to enjoy this in multiple different ways without getting to a point where it's going to either have a population that grows out of control or drive down the population so that you know, the non-hunting community and the hunting community can't enjoy the resource. Yeah. Well, and on top of that, you know, about two years ago, we sat in front of the Natural Resources Board as a collective group. And the Natural Resources Board at that time was arguably one of the toughest to stand before. And they said that when Taylor introduced the management plan for migratory birds in the state, they said it was the best management plan that they've ever seen. And I think that stands to the coalition of stakeholder groups, but I think it also stands to the level of effort that the department, especially in the migratory piece, puts forth to know that the things that we do, it's usually received well by all everywhere. And, you know, that's a key when you're trying to take this to a legislative group Right. To say, look, this comes from a vetted group of individuals who stood the test of time on numerous controversial topics. And it goes to what Bruce said, is that we have a track record of success with how we're currently managing migratory species. We have the money. When we get the money from the hunters, we do really good habitat work and the birds respond to that. And so having that track record of, hey, this is across the continent, let alone within the state, that you guys can do this and do this well, it just provides that much more confidence that if you're going to bring something before us, we feel good about it. Yeah, that's what's so frustrating to me as a leader of a hunting organization is that that good work that hunters do and the money that hunters bring to the table in support of the species they care about somehow gets overlooked. 
by the non-hunting public because and just, we don't point it out enough. Yeah, and, and, and I I think this that's a great point. Your your point earlier about we're not joined together in such a way. We're in our own lanes, and as a result, we don't necessarily look across that lane and find. But this is a slippery slope argument. If we can't legitimately support and get a sandhill crane hunt in Wisconsin for a species that's a game animal in seventeen other states, seventeen and, other and four, states, and four provinces. If we can't do that with a population that is uh, two and a half to three times bigger than the targets, if we can't do that, then what's next? Is it the wood duck uh, that has a, another storied history of recovery or, as you pointed out, the turkey? I mean, so this is something that should go across all hunting lanes uh, to find some support for because who knows what's next? Yeah. So hunters are unique. Because we are the best protectors of wildlife. And sometimes we're stubborn bastards and that gets in our way. You are. <laughs> but, but I don't think there's a group that cares more about the resource than the hunters, nor is there a group that pays more for the resource true. than the hunters. 100% and I, true. I talked to Mike Butler the other day from uh, the Tennessee Wildlife Federation and you know, the question I had was, what can you tell me about your Sandhill season from start to now? And they're roughly 10 years deep. You know, Kentucky's right behind them in Alabama. And he knows of no issues with these seasons. And in fact, in Tennessee's case, they went from a very soft opening, you know, reduced bag, reduced areas to hunt, where now virtually the whole state is open to Sandhill hunting. Um, and it has been a success for hunting in Tennessee. And there's no doubt we're on the edge of that right now. We've got a tougher road to hoe with the International uh, Crane Foundation here, but I think we are set in Wisconsin. And so I'm going to put this plea out there. If you're in the Midwest, contact your legislators, no matter what state you're in, let them know how you feel about it. Because I can tell you one call uh, to a legislator uh, can be ignored. 10 calls, they start paying attention. A hundred calls, they think it's a huge issue. So get out there and do that and hopefully we're going to see things move here in the state of wisconsin for a sandhill crane hunt uh the foul life crew chad belding bubba henderson tom rasheen is coming to the state of wisconsin uh, wisconsin has teamed up with travel wisconsin from the department of tourism to let folks know the magic we have here as a state and our natural resources chad belding's coming and he is coming here and we are going to show the the nation and the world on the largest waterfowl hunting show in the world, what Wisconsin's all about. And I'm super excited about it. And these meetings we had months and months ago with the Waterfowl Association, with Kakich and, and, and with uh, Todd Schaller, the former chief warden. And I cannot be more excited about it. And we're going to do everything from a cheese curd factory tour with Kramer's Cheese Curds in Watertown. We're going to be interviewing one of the last living family members of the storied Harley Davidson family, Bill Davidson at the Harley Davidson Museum. And when you talk about, you know, Milwaukee Iron, that is a worldwide brand that we're going to focus and feature on Vortex, the fastest growing uh, optical 
company in the world is based right here in Wisconsin. There is so much to be proud of in this great state. And, you know, Chad's expecting to kill some birds too. And we're going to try to do that as best we can. But this kind of thing is absolutely huge for the state. I mean, it's huge. Taylor, you know, you work for a government entity and for a government entity to team up with a private industry to bring what's best for the state of Wisconsin. What does this mean for the state? What does it mean for the Midwest? It's again, it just highlights how, what we have. I mean, we have 5 million acres of wetlands. We got two great lakes. We got the Mississippi river. We have showcase everything that, you know, the rest of the country has, and we're just, we are unique. So I, I, again, I'm super excited to have them. And I think that they're going to have a blast. Don't forget a wetland of international importance. Work on Marsh. You can't forget it. And I want to talk for just a second about how this is exactly what I was talking about different philosophies getting together for the common good of the great state. You know, I sat as a, as a Republican state lawmaker in the Wisconsin House. My wife, Rebecca, was lieutenant governor of the state, a Republican lieutenant governor of this state. We are teaming up with the Governor Evers administration, a Democrat administration, to work together in the outdoors on a hunting television show to bring some of the benefits of the state of Wisconsin to this state, this country, in the world. And I think what that tells you is it does not matter your political stripes to be able to appreciate what it is in the state of Wisconsin that we have to offer the rest of the world. Uh, George, do you think it's going to take cooperation across the political lines for us? And and do you see the Travel Wisconsin uh, partnership and the trip here by the Fowl Life as kind of an integral and an important step in working together for the betterment of the wildlife in Wisconsin? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I can't wait to have you and Governor Evers out in Horicon in the boat for a duck hunt. So I'm looking forward to that. I get, so you guys, get on it. You highlight how important it is to have our hunters reach out and to be part of this. I mean, we rank top five in the country in terms of number of waterfowl hunters we have out there. Our deer hunting community, if you put it in terms of military, it's the eighth largest military in the world that goes out and deer hunts on opening weekend. That's insane. And the fowl life's coming here during the gun deer season. And we're going to be at the Bark River Lanes, which is a traditional Wisconsin supper club uh, with the dead animals from mounted from like 40 years ago. And they're just horrible. The skin's slipping. And it's just, it's just perfect. And I just can't wait to showcase the great state of Wisconsin because this is a partnership that's unlike any I've seen before. I, th- I think you're right. I mean, being a Wisconsinite, I always get excited when we have, you know, shows that are focused on the great things our state has to offer. So it's about time. I mean, this is only going to bring good things for not only our economy, but our outdoors industry. It's going to be great. And Clayfish, I think you're a great person for the job, not just because your wife likes me and I put up with you. but <laughs> Everybody likes her more than me. It's right. all right. But you know what? I think that what you're going to bring to Wisconsin tourism is going to hopefully well round that program and we look forward to seeing what you bring well if it, this wouldn't have been possible if it weren't for you know the folks in this room and the wildlife uh, federation the wisconsin waterfowl association and frankly 
the willingness of the foul life and the administration to meet across a table and say, how can we look at the things we have in common versus the things that divide us? And I think that is kind of what we should probably wrap up the podcast on, because when it comes to the resources in the state of Wisconsin, utilizing them to your advantage to bring food from the field to the table, whether you're foraging, whether you're hunting, we have an opportunity right now like never before, where the right is meeting the left in organic eating, where the right is meeting the left in the pride in our state. And this is just a fantastic time to be in the Midwest, to be in Wisconsin, to be part of Travel Wisconsin. The words right there mean travel to Wisconsin. See what we're about. Meet our people. They're the kindest, most generous people you'll ever meet. We've got the most diversity of cuisine in the state of Wisconsin of any state in the country. And we really know how to cook wild game. So I can't wait for the Fowl Life crew to get here. We'll combine the Fowl Life and the Fowl Life Midwest. And we'll shoot some shows that'll be on next season. We're going to do a lot of cooking. I'm afraid we're going to do a lot of eating, but that's going to happen. We're going to go provider field to table. And we'll catch you next time on the Fowl Life Podcast Midwest series. I'm Joel Clayfish. We'll see ya. Let's begin giving credit to those who put in the effort and truly make a difference. The bicyclists on the trails, the ATV users, the kayakers, the mountain climbers, none of their trails, none of their stuff would be halfway as fantastic in Wisconsin as it is if it weren't for the hunters. Sig Sauer and Federal Premium Black Cloud proudly support the Foul Life's Midwest Series with Joel Clayfish. Now don't go anywhere because Joel will be right back to wrap the show. Hang on. We've had the provider mentality for a long time. Growing up and watching dad and mom cook wild game, whether it was an Italian lasagna or a spaghetti, I watched in awe and I couldn't wait to be old enough to do it. Then we got to travel and meet all of these different chefs at all these different lodges in Argentina and Uruguay or Paraguay or Arkansas or Missouri or Chef Mark Lindsay who you hear on the podcast, This Life Ain't For Everybody, a lot up in Minnesota at Trapper's Landing, part of the Reed's family of brands. And I started to learn so many different unorthodox, out-of-the-box ways of preparing Mr. Billy Bogey's smothered deer steak at Prairie Wings Duck Club in Arkansas or the duck empanadas at Duck Guides of Argentina. And they all became part of the Provider Cookbook, the Provider Mentality at theproviderlife.com, our rubs, our original 10 in the Ultimate Pack, including the swine and the flaky, the spawn, the drop time, the foul, the crosshairs, the Brit, the dragon, the Sonora. Then we introduced the brand beef rub and the mother cluck and chicken rub. And you can find recipes at theproviderlife.com. Check out the Provider TV on the My Outdoor TV app, Mo TV, part of the Outdoor Sportsman's Group and the Outdoor Channel family of brands. We got more coming. We got so much more coming. Good luck out in the field. Good luck out on the rivers. I hope you get those wild turkey nuggets and that pickle juice right away and get ready to throw down with some different rubs on them. The provider lifestyle. We're so honored to live it. Thank you, Lord, for letting us be outdoorsmen, hunter, gatherers, conservationists, and providers. Again, theproviderlife.com. Thank you for visiting. Looking for a high-quality truck accessory that's built to last? Look no further than Lear. With over 50 years of experience in the industry, these guys know what it takes to make your ride look and performance best. Whether you're looking for a fiberglass or aluminum cap, a hard or soft cover, or accessories to customize your truck, Lear's got you covered. 
Their products are made with only the best materials, and their innovative features provide added convenience and security for truck owners. Head over to Lear.com to explore their range of products and take your driving experience to the next level. One of my favorite parts of the hunt is the scouting. Is there anything better? The anticipation, riding back roads, dirt roads, seeing that dust in your rear view, seeing mallards pitching off to your right, Canada geese going down, snow, specks, divers, it doesn't matter what your pursuit is, but having the right optics, the right piece of equipment when you're scouting is everything from optics to rangefinders to tripods to spotting scopes, Vortex Optics does it all. Wisconsin America based company living the American dream. What a brand that has been built out of the Kershaw headquarters again in the great state of Wisconsin. We got plenty more coming from that awesome state. Can't wait to share it with you all. But when you're in the need for a rangefinder or binos of any size or spotting scopes and their tripods, there is nothing like the family of brands at Vortex. Their leisure wear, their lifestyle wear, their apparel, their socks, their shirts, their rain jackets, their rainwear. Absolutely amazing design and innovation that's going into it. I do not go on the road in my trucks or in a plane without a pair of Vortex binoculars. You can check us on that. When you see us, come say hello and we are going to have our Vortex on us. It is no secret that finding the roost, finding the lows, finding the feeds is the number one success piece of puzzle that goes in to consistent waterfowl hunting. You have to be where the birds are. You can run traffic, don't get me wrong, but you still have to have a good set of binos to be able to find the birds and assess the situation and figure out their flight patterns, their feeding times, everything that goes into it, how far you're going to be off of a line, a fence line, a tree line, where you're going to put your blinds, where the vantage point is, exactly where those flocks are hitting in those fields when you're scouting. Enjoy the scout, live through the hunt passionately, and do not cut corners. Vortex Optics, the official binocular and spotting scope of the Fowl Life Podcast and the Fowl Life TV. Time flies when you're having loads of waterfowl fun. And we'll catch you next time on the Fowl Life Podcast Midwest Series. I'm Joel Clayfish. We'll see ya. Stay up to date and informed with all things outdoors and Wisconsin by listening to the Fowl Life's Midwest Series with host Joel Clayfish on SoundCloud, iHeart, Spotify, thefowllife.com, or wherever you stream your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening and support your local hunters.